Welcome to the Molecular Therapy Podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Bricker-Anthony, Scientific Editor of the Molecular Therapy Family of Journals. This episode features a conversation between Dr. Timothy Kripe, Editor-in-Chief of Molecular Therapy Oncology and Professor-in-Chief of Hematology Oncology BMT at Nationwide Children's Hospital, and Dr. Richard Vial, Professor of Immunology at Mayo Clinic. They will discuss a recent article published in the June issue of Molecular Therapy Oncology by Dr. Vial and colleagues titled, Trap and Ambush Therapy Using Sequential Primary and Tumor Escape Selective Oncolytic Viruses. But first, I want you to know that groundbreaking science starts with you. The ASGCT annual meeting wants your latest gene and cell therapy research. Submit an abstract by January 26th and share your innovative work with a global community with more than 7,000 attendees. From CRISPR to cancer immunotherapies, this pioneering event showcases discoveries on the edge of what's possible. Stake your place at the ASGCT annual meeting, because when it comes to the future of transformative healthcare, your discoveries deserve to be seen in Baltimore, May 7 through 11. And now, Dr. Timothy Kreit and Richard Vile. Hello, everyone. I'm Tim Kripe, the Editor-in-Chief of Molecular Therapy Oncology, and I'm here with a special guest, Richard Vile, the senior author of a paper we published back when we were Molecular Therapy Oncolytics uh, in July of 2023, but it's a seminal enough paper. I thought it was worth discussing on a, on a podcast and interesting enough. So uh, welcome, Richard. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for being here. Um, tell us, so this is you, you've always done fantastic work in the oncolytic virus therapy field. We've uh, interacted and crossed paths over the last 20 years on a number of occasions and always admired your work and the detail and the uh, molecular dissection, as it were, mechanistic dissection underpinning some of the effects. And this this one in particular is, is sort of novel, complicated, builds on a lot of other work. Uh, and I think we'll have to build up to it to get our listeners to really uh, comprehend it. But why don't you Sort of give us a little background that led to this paper. Sure, yeah, no, thanks for your comments. Appreciate that. So we did um, some time ago now. We did a clinic, first in man clinical trial of uh, using an oncolytic virus called VSV, expressing interferon beta uh, to treat cancers in the liver, and we saw in that trial as is often the case in some of these phase one trials, we saw individual patients who seemed to do relatively well. Both the injected lesions went away, and in some patients, we saw regression of lesions which were not injected with the virus, suggesting that there was some sort of immune-mediated effect going on. But it was clear also from that trial that we needed to do more. We needed to get both a better viral replication in the injected tumors, uh, because what we were seeing was clearly injected tumors were were regressing and then recurring. 
implying that there was some sort of escape going on. So this is with the VSV uh, interferon, I say beta, sorry, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, expressing virus. Can, can you, and I forgot to actually introduce you to the audience. So just briefly, you are a professor of immunology and uh, consultant in the Department of Immunology and in the Department of Molecular Medicine at Mayo, the Richard Schultze Family Foundation professor, and you trained uh, in biochemistry undergraduate at University of Oxford and PhD at the University of London. So apologize to my audience for not teeing you up there, but uh, c tell us about the VSV and, and, and the reason for the interferon beta transgene in there originally. Sure, so VSV is an oncolytic virus, which uh, at least in theory will selectively replicate in cancer cells and replicate very poorly in normal cells. And the reason for that, at least we postulated some years ago, was that many cancer cells lack an ability to respond to type 1 interferons, interferon alpha, interferon beta or, or beta. And so when the virus infects cancer cells, the virus itself is very sensitive to type 1 interferons. And so if the cancer cells have not are not producing those type 1 interferons or are not responsive, then the virus will replicate very well. But in normal cells where there's a type 1 interferon response against infection, the virus will be shut down very quickly. So we reasoned, uh, as this was the first in man trial of this virus, we would add in the interferon beta gene so that the virus now makes its own interferon beta. So this was an added safety feature such that even uh, is that when the virus would infect normal cells, it will make lots of interferon beta, viral replication will be shut down. And when it infects tumor cells, uh, uh, there will be more interferon beta being produced, which will keep the virus at bay, at least in these first trials, so that it wouldn't go wild. We'd also reasoned that the interferon beta gene would add a sort of immune stimulatory signal so that tumor cells which were infected and died as a result of viral replication would be making interferon beta that would alert the immune system to the presence of a, of a, of a nasty infection and we hope that that would increase the anti-tumor immune effects. And was there a reason you picked the liver cancer patients as first in, in human trials? Uh, we did a lot of preclinical studies in various tumor types, melanoma, uh, liver cancer, and so on. And we saw very, very good uh, responses to human liver tumors with the virus, either with or without the interferon beta. So that was what sort of led us into that disease to start with. Okay, great. So I, with that as a background, I guess, then you, you were saying that you saw some patients respond nicely and others not. So I guess you wanted to address those who were developing resistance. Absolutely. So we, we took uh, tumor tissue and we also went back into our preclinical models and basically exposed tumor cells to low levels of, of the virus, the clinical uh, virus that we were using on the theory that when we went in vivo into these patients, there would be lots of tumor cells. There would be a low multiplicity of infection that we could deliver because of the size of the tumors. And what we did was in, in culture, we exposed these tumor cells to low levels of the virus over a 21 day period. And we saw what similar to sort of what we'd seen in the patients. In most cases, lots of cells started to die but with time, 
the cell culture started to to resist the virus and we saw increasingly increasing numbers of resistant cells which now were not being killed by the virus even though we could show that there was plenty of virus still in those cultures so we were seeing we thought the equivalent of what we'd seen in the patients an initial response followed by this uh, development of resistance of these tumor cells cancers tend to be smart don't they they figure yeah. out ways around these things so how did you go about figuring out what was going on then so what we did was we took those cells which had uh, had evolved to resist the viral infection viral killing uh, and we we did uh, a, a large-scale sequencing of the genomes of those uh, resistant cultures and we saw multiple mutations uh, in the genomes of the resistant cells compared to the uh, the parental cells before we put the virus on but what really stood out to us was a a, a mutation which occurred in 70 to 100 percent of the resistant cells following virus uh, infection at this very high frequency so in in cell cultures where we put quite a lot of virus on we saw about a hundred percent of the resistant cells carried a mutation in a, in a gene a single point mutation in a gene called csde1 which is is a, a pro, encodes a protein called cold shock domain containing protein e1 or csde1 and amongst all of these mutations across the genome in these resistant cells this mutation a single point mutation in csde1 stood out to us as being in as i say 70 to 100 percent of those resistant cells implying that its mutation was really critical in acquiring resistance to the virus that's really dramatic uh, numbers and it was always the same base pair change yeah what we saw was this uh, this mutation which converted a proline at amino acid 5 into a serine and what was really quite dramatic to us was that it was we 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 put the virus onto melanoma cells liver cancer cells and other cells and it was independent of the tumor type that we were treating we saw those cells which was which resisted the virus had this mutation not always at 100% frequency but at high frequencies between you know between tumors do you think that the, those mutations were pre-existing at a low level and those cells were just selected or did somehow the the cells started mutating upon exposure to the virus fast enough that they could resist it yeah we can't exclude that in the sort of in the population of tumor cells there was a, a small population which had that um mutation although deep sequencing suggested that that's not the case you know we we went down to quite a sensitive uh, sequencing technique and we saw we didn't see that mutation in the parental cells before the virus had forced the mutation so this pretty much happens to every tumor type that you've tried where you've exposed them to vsv yep uh you know and it depends the, the frequency of the mutation depends upon the aggressive, you know, the aggressiveness with which we selected, how high the level of virus is. Uh, but in in different tumor types, we saw that same mutation occurring in those cells which become resistant to the virus. And that's not just in vitro, also in vivo. Yeah, 
Yeah, so we uh, we would gr- we grew tumors in in mice, subcutaneous tumors in mice, injected those tumors with a virus, in exactly the same way as we'd done in the clinical trial, uh, and uh, we saw emergence of uh, tumors which resisted the virus and which had this mutation. There's a sort of a a, a slight caveat in that we believe that the the mechanisms of escape in immune competent mice are different from those in culture so we could get about 100 percent of the of the resistant cells carried this mutation when we uh selected those cells in culture but in vivo it was always a lower percentage and we believe that's because resistance to the virus involves other immune mediated effects which we don't see in culture okay so um then you took a what i would consider a pretty smart maneuver by creating a new virus that wouldn't that would overcome that tell us about that right so we saw that these cells which resisted the virus had this mutation in the CSDE1 gene and were clearly making a mutant CSDE1 protein and so we reasoned that the virus must be using the wild type CSDE1 protein for its replication in the literature, CSDE1 has been reported to be involved in viral replication of rhinoviruses and a couple of other viruses, but not VSV. So we looked at the role that CSDE1 might be having in VSV replication, and we showed, uh, you know, in collaboration with Paul Beanash at Rockefeller, that it, that CSDE1 is indeed a critical cofactor for the replication of, of VSV. It co-localizes with VSV replication factories in the cytoplasm and so on. So we then took that another a step further. And if the cell can escape the virus by mutating CSDE1, we wondered whether the virus can escape a mutated CSDE1 cell to get to recover its replication because just as you say, cancers are incredibly smart and will find a way to evade therapy, be that a virus, chemotherapy, or whatever. So viruses are incredibly smart. And if given a, a substrate where they can't replicate well, they will mutate as well so that they can uh, uh, replicate. So, so we took the, these cells, which had the mutated CSDE1 protein, put the wild-type virus onto those cells, and cultured those those cells and viruses over five uh, cell passages. And initially, the virus was the wild type virus could not replicate very well at all, which is what consistent with what we've seen that those cells are resistant to viral replication. But with time, we started to see a virus coming out of those cultures, which could replicate uh, with increasing titers. And indeed, after five rounds of growing the virus in these CSDE1 mutant cells, we had a virus which was placking at about the same titer as the wild type virus on wild type cells. So we knew that we'd got a virus which could adapt to the CSDE1 mutation, and we sequenced that virus to find out what it had done in order to to adapt. Sort of reminds me of the old days when you would be try to go speeding and you'd have a radar detector and then the cops would figure out how to detect your radar detector. And so then they'd make a new radar detector 
that they couldn't. So it's this cat and mouse game almost. You've got the tumor cell that's mutating to resist the virus. So then the virus mutates to resist that new mutated tumor cell. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and then you also put the wild type uh, CSDE1 into the virus as well. That that made it work better as well. So it carried its own version of that. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, absolutely. So then is this a never ending process like the virus mutates, the cell mutates, the virus mutates, the cell mutates, the virus mutates, the cell mutates, or you think we've you've got something that's that works better? So I think, yes, I think in, in, in the lab, we can make this a never-ending cycle. We can, you know, uh, isolate cells which are resistant to the virus. We can then force evolution of the virus to respond to that. And that will go on and on, presumably, until, uh, you know, uh, we get completely different viruses and cells. In vivo, in the patient, I think what happens is that the, uh, you know, the the tumors in this case respond quicker than the virus can. So what I mean by that is, sorry, we put the wild type virus into the wild type tumors uh, and we get killing, but we get ev evolution of the tumor cells to escape. What we have not seen in the patient is rapid evolution of the virus to respond to that in, mm. in, in the patients. And I, I think this sort of evolution of the virus to respond to the tumor cells, you know, that took us five passages in culture and probably in vivo, the virus is cleared by the immune system too quickly. There are all sorts of pressures to prevent that sort of re-emergence of the better virus. I see. So the strategy here is you as a clinician or as a, you know, a, a scientist figuring out, uh, anticipating or, or based on past experience, knowing what the tumor is going to do in response to the virus and preempting that by creating the super virus, as it were, ahead of time so that it can't, uh, so that it continue, if the tumor changes, it doesn't matter. Is that that's right? exactly right. And that's why we, 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 our title was sort of trap and ambush. So I think what's attractive to us about this is if we, if we're using a, a therapy, frontline therapy, be it a non-colytic virus or chemotherapy or radiotherapy or whatever that is, if we can understand how the tumor is going to fight that therapy, i.e. it's going to mutate in order to, to become resistant to the therapy, in this case, the virus, then instead of that being a bad thing, we can actually start to exploit that because we know that if we, if we force that evolution of resistance then we can use that resistant phenotype to our own advantage by coming in with a follow-up therapy in this case what you're calling you know the super virus uh, and that super virus will now be specifically selected uh, to to fight the resistance so in we can drive the tumor we can trap the tumor into a phenotype which the tumor to be anthropomorphic believes is a is a cunning way to escape of the therapy but by getting into that phenotype we can then come in with the next round of therapy specifically designed to attack that phenotype yeah so for your listeners you you you, you brought it up the title is trap and ambush therapy using sequential primary and tumor escape selective oncolytic viruses so the trap part was really making this, as you say, uh, corner of the tumor and into its sort of mutated state, but having a virus that 
that overcomes that. The ambush is really, in a way, I think the the immune uh, leveraging the immune response, if I recall from your paper correctly. And as we all know now, uh, whereas those of us who have been in the field a long time originally, sort of, or at least many of us, maybe not you, kind of were attracted to oncolytic virus because they kill cells and spread to the next cell and kill it, spread to the next cell and kill it. We know that oncolytic effect is really only part of it and probably a major part of the attraction now for oncolytic virus is their stimulation of an immune response against the tumor. And uh, the other part of your paper, the ambush part, you really leveraged sort of the mutated tumor in a, in a, to, for, for better immunotherapy. Tell us about that strategy. Yeah, so exactly as we'd seen that the tumor mutates in order to escape our initial frontline front viral therapy, we saw mutation in this CSDE1 gene. And in the, the, the species of mouse that we were using, it's called a C57 black mouse, but the mutation in the CSDE1 gene that we saw that is necessary to escape viral oncolysis generates this mutated CSDE1 protein. In that mouse, the mutated form of the protein is actually a strong immunogen. That is, it has part that the mutated part is seen by T cells as essentially foreign. That's called a neoantigen uh, in this context. So in a previous paper that we published, uh, we knew that by driving this mutation to escape the virus, the, the mutated tumor cells were actually making uh, protein, which is potentially a target for T cell therapy. And as well as CSDE1, that's probably true for a variety of other proteins which become mutated as a result of the, of the resistance process. So we knew that we had, with your terms of reference, a super virus, which we, we could come in with to attack the resistant tumors. But we also knew that we would that in those mice there would be T cells which could see these resistant tumors much better than the, the mice could see the parental tumors. The parental tumors are what we call non-immunogenic or poorly immunogenic. They have very little T cell reactivity against them. But the escaped tumors are have these neoantigens expressed, which are targets for T cells. So there's a class of, uh, of immune therapy called immune checkpoint blockade or, or immune checkpoint inhibitors, which can be used to sort of take the brakes off T cell uh, reactivity. And these are now proving to be very successful in the clinic. So we reasoned that if we drive the tumors into this mutated phenotype, we could come in with two additional therapies. One is our super virus to attack the mutations in the resistant cells, and we could also give an immune checkpoint inhibitor, which would allow the T cell reactivity that we knew was being generated in those mice to sort of take off and become much more powerful. And so in the in the last part of the paper, we, we did a sort of a, a double whammy type of therapy. We drove the tumors into their resistant phenotype with a, with a frontline uh, virus, we then came in with a second virus, our super virus, which would cause lysis and oncolysis of the escaped tumor cells. 
And we then gave this immune checkpoint blockade such that the T cells, which were seeing the escape cells, would also be enhanced in their, um, in their efficacy. And now we started with that combination, we saw really a, a, a high degree of tumor cures. We saw, you know, typically eight out of 10 mice would be long-term tumor-free by this sort of sequential trap, ambush, uh, and, and immune activation therapy. It, it's sort of shock and awe. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's it, it's reminiscent of the early days of chemotherapy where you had to give multiple different kinds of drugs to really get uh, remissions and efficacy. And and so that that idea of combination or uh, sequential or synergistic effects of multiple approaches attacking into them from different angles, essentially, is really a well-established paradigm for cancer therapy. And this is uh, presumably, hopefully, a, a less dangerous, less toxic, more safe version that may be, you know, better than the old days of poisons, chemotherapy poisons. Um, is there a risk of this super, since I started calling it super virus, uh, that may imply negative things as well, as we all know, having come through a, a, a COVID pandemic. So is there a risk that the modifications you've made to the virus make it less susceptible to interferon or uh, make it more uh, promiscuous in terms of its in infection? Uh, is it a less safe virus? Sure, we, we think in this case less so because the virus um, which replicates in the mutated tumor cells is very, very selective to those mutated tumor cells. And that mutation in CSDE1 only occurs in these, in these tumor cells which have escaped the virus. So most of our normal cell, well, all of our normal cells will not have the mutation in, the, in them, the CSDE1 mutation, which allows the virus to replicate. So we think that this, uh, this super virus is highly selective to tumor cells which have already escaped viral replication. So um, that said, you know, the, our whole paper is predicated on the ability of viruses to to, to change according to the substrate, you know, on which they're trying to replicate. So there's always a chance of further, further changes in the virus and so on. Uh, do you know what percentage, like one of the limitations of oncolytic viral therapy has been that the virus infects only a subset of the tumor. And so presumably these mutations are only occurring in those cells that are actually infected by virus. Now you do probably have a bystander effect with stimulating the immune response to the extent there may be uh, tumor antigens that the immune system can recognize that are on the other cells and not just the mutated cell. Um, have you looked into sort of the details of, of that phenomenon and what percentage of cells are getting this mutation and is there an enhanced bystander effect and so forth? Absolutely right, yes. So, in fact, you know, in, in the therapy experiment where we gave the first virus, the second, the, the, the first clinical virus, then the super virus, and then the immune checkpoint blockade, we tested this therapy in a group of mice where we gave the first virus, the super virus, and no immune checkpoint blockade. And we saw significantly better therapy than with the parental virus by itself, which is encouraging. But uh, we didn't see as good a therapy as if we gave the immune checkpoint blockade. So 
the inference of those data is very much that viral replication is a good thing. It drives oncolysis exactly as the sort of the oncolytic camp, as it were, you know, the direct viral lysis would predict. But that we clearly need to amplify the levels of replication and, and oncolysis with an anti-tumor uh, T-cell effect. And so when we gave the immune checkpoint blockade, we we typically went from about 30% of the mice being cured with just the viruses to anywhere between 80 and 90 in a couple of experiments, 100% of those mice being cured when we added the immune checkpoint blockade. It's clear, I think, that the virus replicates in a proportion of the cells, but that that is sort of lighting an immune fire and we need to, uh, to, to exploit the immune fire as well as the direct oncolysis. So we're starting to run up against time, but I uh, wonder if we can sort of wrap this up with a discussion about the future, the generalizability of this approach. Perhaps is this going to be just limited to a VSV phenomenon? Is it if it is or even if it isn't, is it is it, you think it's limited to certain tumor types? What is the outlook and, and what will be the clinical trans the strategy for clinical translation? Uh, and how how hard, easy or hard uh, getting this kind of approach into patients will that be? Sure. So I think that the concepts that we talk about in this paper will be applicable to a variety of treatments, both viral and others. So you know, with our ability now to do deep sequencing uh, and and you know the the whole range of big data accumulation, I think it would be possible to look at tumor recurrences from any frontline therapy uh, and try and identify those mutations which are common at high frequency even across tumor types to identify those pathways and those genes which are directly involved in escape from chemotherapy, virotherapy, immune, immune therapy and so on. So I think identifying gene signatures of escaped cells will be very important to devise how we can then attack those those recurrences. With VSV, I think, you know, this virus is very specific. We would like to do, and in fact, we have now started a clinical trial in companion dogs at the University of Minnesota with uh, Dr. Antonella Borgatti, exactly with this approach with VSV, where we are trying uh, treatment with the improved, with the super virus, in uh, animal, in dogs, companion dogs with melanoma. I think that it'll be applicable to other viruses. Uh, you know, a lot of oncolytic viruses are out there. And I think it will be relatively simple to look at the mutations in cells which escape viral replication and see if we can generate similar sort of viruses tailored for that. Of course, the clinical applicability is somewhat diminished because in our approach we need to make at least two different viruses to GMP levels that's very expensive uh, and you know is sort of limiting the approach but I think as those those things become easier and cheaper this concept I think of using sequential treatments specifically to target escape mechanisms uh, you know should be clinically appropriate yeah I mean, that's, that's great. Congratulations on this work. We appreciate your publishing and MTO. 
I guess before I let you go, I'm going to throw uh, the big question at you since I've got you on the line here. Um, you know, there since TVEC was approved, uh, there hasn't been another oncolytic virus in the U.S. Uh, FDA approved for cancer, despite tons of work by many people, including yourself, and uh, tons of clinical trials. Why do you think that's the case? What do we need to do differently? So, yes, I, I agree that, um, you know, I think in some respects, oncolytic biotherapy field is in a little bit of a in a little bit of a dip and needs a big success i think the competitors for oncolytic biotherapy you know are things like immune checkpoint blockade car t cells and so on uh, and i i i do think that that we need a big success in terms of clinical applicability i went to the recent oncolytic biotherapy meeting in banff and I went there rather with a sort of a rather more negative view and thinking, you know, is the field sort of on its last legs or whatever. But I came away from that meeting much more positively. I think one of the things from that meeting that was clear is that when we do these clinical trials, we're treating all comer patients, as it were. And th there were some talks which made it clear that within subsets of patients within trials do better than other subsets of patients and identifying the reasons for that and the patients which will do well is an important way forward clearly combination therapy is an important way forward my own personal view is that those combination therapies of say viruses plus immune checkpoint blockade should be based upon much more rational preclinical data we ourselves have been looking at the sequence of virus and immune checkpoint blockade, for example. So we see a very strong antiviral T cell response. And if you give immune checkpoint blockade while there's an antiviral T cell response, the chances of you enhancing the anti-tumor T cell response are diminished. And so I think careful combinations, but careful sequencing of combinations will yield better uh, results. And just a personal view is, I think it's important that the, the field is very self-critical. I think at some point it's very important to say, you know, are we doing as well as we as we think we should be doing? And what are the reasons for, for if the answer to that is no, then, you know, what are the reasons for that? And And I think, you know, there are ways forward, careful sequencing, careful combinations, and understanding some of the mechanisms which are sort of covered in the paper, I think. Yeah. Well, certainly there's still a lot to learn. And um, I missed the Banff meeting, although I'd hoped to go. But uh, I'm glad to hear that you were a bit uh, rejuvenated by it for the field, I guess. Uh, sounds like uh, predictive biomarkers need to be developed to identify those patients who who are most aptly suited to respond to, to these kinds of therapies as an important thing forward going forward. That's Fantastic. Yeah, thank you so much for the conversation. It's been great. We appreciate all the work you're doing and, and keep it up. We're looking forward to your next publication. Thank you. I really appreciate the invitation to talk.